everybody. I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something not through no fault of our own or through our own making we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. It's a beautiful day in paradise, and I always say that for my Canadian friends because down here in Florida, it is a beautiful day in spite of the rain that's going to be coming in tonight. I was teasing my husband as he's getting ready to go to the golf course that it doesn't matter that it's raining because my orchids are in heaven when it rains. Didn't make him happy, but it's a beautiful day in paradise here, and I'm so excited to have a very special guest with us coming in from Utah. It's early, early in the morning there, and I so appreciate him being here. Our special guest today is Mr. Hugh Vale, and Hugh, are you there? I am here. I wanted everybody to know that Hugh and I have not met in person, which is true about me and a lot of my guests, but I was... uh, introduced to him through our Awakening Giants group. He was on a summit that I was on. And when I heard, excuse me, when I heard what Hugh does with Mustang Medicine, I'm like, I have got to talk to this man. Because Hugh, we haven't really talked, but the organization I work with that I'm on the board of directors of, which is called SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, I, I deal with, work with a lot of women and some men that have been through some real trauma due to a, an online relationship fraud that took a lot of money, a lot of heart, a lot of everything away from them. And so when I heard what you're doing, I'm thinking, you know what, that would be a really interesting topic in light of what we're doing. We're going to go back a little bit in time so we get to know who you are a little bit. I'd like to know a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, if you have siblings, hobbies, those kinds of things. So could you tell me a little bit about you so I get to know who you are? <laughs> yes. I grew up predominantly in Southern California. My uh, parents met when they were just getting into college, and uh, I think my dad was 18 and my mom was 21 when I was born. And uh, I was born in 1981, and we uh, went back to my dad's hometown, Santa Barbara, California. That's where he was born. That's where his parents were born. That's where their parents were born. If you go to the Santa Barbara mission, many of my ancestors are born in the walls of the Santa Barbara mission. My grandfather was an electrician, and so he, and that's what he did his entire life. So we spent uh, a lot of our youth in Santa Barbara. There was an interesting period where I, they weren't, we weren't being tested for ADD back then. And so I ended up going to a couple different high schools. My junior year of high school, I had an accumulative GPA of 0.17. But I was also reading books like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Hmm. And basically the disconnect was, if I'm not interested in it, I am literally not interested in it. And I don't know if that's a strength or a deficiency <laughs> because, because what I am interested in, I am very interested in, and I throw all of my time and attention into it. And uh, it's, it's like I become almost obsessive about it. I later, and this is like 2010-ish, maybe 2009, 
went actually to a psychologist and got tested for ADD. I had a marriage that uh, was struggling, and I walked into this psychologist, and I said, I think I'm broken. Uh, you got to fix me. Give me the pill. I don't care. I just, I, I don't want this marriage to fall apart, and, and I'll do whatever. And she said, said, well, I don't think you have any major, major problems. And I was like, oh, I got major problems. Like my marriage is falling apart, and, and I don't want that to, to happen. And so, you know, fix me. She said, well, crazy people don't walk into a doctor's office and say, I think I'm crazy. The, the crazy people always say, I'm not crazy. It's the other person that's crazy. So she said, but what I will do is let's put you through a series of tests. I went through a, a test on attention deficit disorder. I found out there are five different types that they test for. Of the five different types, there are two ADHDs. One is hyperactivity. I don't have that. One, the other is hyperfocus. I do have that. I scored as an outlier on the test. So if it gets my attention, it gets all of my attention. If it doesn't get my attention, it gets none of my attention, and I just chase butterflies and shiny things. And, and, uh, and so that's how I ended up finding out, uh, you know, why things are such a struggle for me to do, like, basic things, like your homework when you don't want to do your math homework. I mean, it's like pulling teeth from a tiger. I just really struggle with it. That was a really significant thing through, throughout, throughout my life. Um, I've been divorced twice, and um, I've got two kids. Uh, there's a very deep, deep, painful story behind that. Uh, I've never told that publicly. Um, but essentially, I uh, two years ago, my my wife at the time and my ex got into a legal situation um, and the way to make the whole legal situation go away, I ended up having to give my two kids up for adoption. And that's the short short side of it, and that creates tremendous deep deep sorrow and um i would say I would say uh that's probably been my uh, probably all of ours. I don't want to make this like a super sad thing. I've had an amazing life, but in in juxtaposition of an amazing amazing life and doing some of the most incredible things, I've also experienced some of the deepest sorrow that I think my soul could have ever handled. Um, and I know that just because I there were times that I literally felt just like my heart was shattered and my spirit was just totally, absolutely broken. I, the day that I signed the adoption papers, my daughter was 12 years old. My son was 10. I never missed, uh, you know, I was, I had standard minimum custody. I never missed my, my weekends. Of course, you know, over 12 years, you're going to have, like, some little things. But, like, 99.9% .9 of the time, I never missed it. If I did, because of work, I, was, I had to job where I traveled around different parts of the world. So, you know, you got to say, hey, my flight doesn't come in here. Can we swap? And, and uh, we were usually able to work that out. But uh, the day I signed that, I remember walking out to to uh, the horse pen. Again, this is in 2020. This is not long ago. I, uh, I remember, I, I don't know how to, dis I, 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 all I can do is just tell you what I experienced. It felt as if my soul left my body because I grieved so hard. And it felt like my soul and my body for some reason could not remain together in that level of grief as I just sobbed. And all I could say was no, just over and over and over. I just, 
I, I just kept saying, no, like, no, this is not happening. And so I've had extremely deep, deep sorrow. Divorce creates deep sorrow. I'm becoming well experienced with that. I don't think I should be allowed to make life choices uh, when it comes to companions and in, in marriages. Apparently, I'm, apparently I need to go to school for that. Don't beat yourself up on that one. All in all, I think what I have... Uh, what I have come to learn, and this is kind of where Mustang Medicine come, comes into play, because there's two ways to tell our stories. There's the blame-shame narrative, and then there is the accountability and empathy narrative. And what I have learned with deep emotional wounds is that we are the only ones that can heal our deep emotional wounds. And I think deep emotional wounds come from uh, feelings or experiences that generate feelings like abandonment, rejection, uh, any type of abuse. Um, I, I mean, these are things, you know, you, you, we all have some experience with. And these types of things... There's nothing that anyone else can say. Even the person that was involved in, in, the, you know, in the abandonment or the rejection, if you were rejected or you were abandoned, right? The, if, even if that person came back, what would they say? This is what I've thought about many times. What would they say to me that I would say, okay, yeah, emotional wound healed, Thank you for your words. You know, what could they do to restore that? And I think in most cases, if not all cases, the answer is nothing. So what I've learned is that it's how I tell the story that heals my wound. And this is extremely challenging, like extremely, extremely challenging. It may be one of the most difficult things that we ever do is to realize that the wounds, that the emotional wounds that we have being so painful can only be healed by the person who has the emotional wound. Because I went to therapists and they never, they never said anything that healed it. You know, they never did anything. I had... Uh, people that had hurt me come back and apologize to me and I still found out that months and years later I was still I was still angry or hurt uh, the, the wound was still open and bleeding on my life and so I was almost 17 I ran away from home and I ran away because of the dysfunction of my parents and the dynamics of, of that setting. And uh, there was physical abuse, mostly mental and emotional abuse that was there. I hate to throw that word around. I think we all throw it around way too much. Um, but there was not gentleness. There was not healthy boundaries. The, there was really some challenging things that went on. And so for me, uh, you know, I, I, left, I left that. I didn't find out till a couple decades later that I still have abandonment wounds from those early years. And I think that's healthy. I think that's normal. I think I should have that. But what I think is even better is those got to be healed and my parents have apologized. My parents have taken accountability. And yet I still had those, you know, those, those wounds for so long, even after my parents. And this is when you, this is when what I recognized is that, and you guys might resonate with this, I don't know, that it's deep self-awareness. You might have a friend that you hear them saying, you're trying to apologize to and the apology is never good enough. And it's like, when does it become good enough? I think it becomes good enough when we change the story about what happened to us to something that happened for us. 
and that's where you break off into the two types of stories. I'm excuse me. I'm, I'm sitting here just basically speechless because I, I I understand. I understand what you're saying about when you're a kid and and you're hyper focused. I have my second son is like that, and extraordinary young man, gifted in so many ways, but. Mm-hmm. was the second child that didn't want to follow after his brother's footsteps, wanted to do it himself, and he's become an extraordinary <laughs> military pilot. Loves golf. Focuses like like ultra ultra focused on on something. You know, when he's playing golf, he's only playing golf. When he's flying, he's only flying. It's just an it, so I'm listening to what <laughs> yes. you're saying. That's extraordinary. As far as the the deep hurt, I'm so sorry about what happened with with the the children and and your marriages. Uh, you know. I found um, after my husband passed away that there were things that actually we'd been married 26 years. There are things that happened that hurt me deeply in in the marriage. And when he died, you know, I, for years after, I had this this hurt was still there, but I couldn't express it, and it turned to anger and frustration. And I'm like, how can I be angry at someone that's dead? And it wasn't until I had gone to a self-awareness group. It's called um, Essence of Being with my friend Burge Smith-Lyons. And Burge, said, Burge had this program where we had someone there as, as a vicarious <laughs> you know, stand-in for the person that had hurt you. And I apologized. I apologized for holding on to those feelings. Because I knew you know, he couldn't come back and apologize. And I knew he had, but I... I'm not sure that I accepted it at the time, but he did what he needed to do. He he apologized. But I had to forgive what he did. I had to forgive myself for those feelings and I had to release it. I'm like, this is not benefiting me at all. You know? And and the same thing happened after the scam. When I found out that the two year relationship I had had been a scam and I'd lost a million dollars a lot, hmm. he asked for forgiveness. And I'm thinking, you know what? I had to do that for me so I could move forward. But when you said, what, how would you feel if he came back and apologized now? I'm thinking, I don't, I'm not waiting for an apology. I'm beyond that. Yeah. You know, Whatever yeah. he says to me, it's not going to change how I am now um, because right. it's been nine years and I really have worked hard to get through it, past it, move beyond because you have – I want to get into a lot of the stuff that, you, that you've – brought about with the the just be workshop and just be grateful mm. you know the no complaining mm. no blaming no shaming no sorrow wasted when you can find the purpose in why we've been through these things and use it for good for me that's been the most beneficial in my life and yeah that's exactly a lot right. younger than me so i give you great credit for what you're doing um so can let's I mean, going into this, this this morning, I had so many notes in so many different places, and you've, you've changed it for me, which is really excellent. I, I thank you for being so vulnerable and open because what you went through is happening to a lot of our friends and my kids, and, and people don't yeah, usually express right. it. So thank you for doing that because it opens up a dialogue. And you've been, doing, you've been working with the Mustangs for years, so how did your training help you get through what you're going through now did it (laughs) yeah basically what happens this is such an interesting thing i know it's true about horses because i know the brain science behind horses this may be true about many other animals but horses have such a dear uh compassionate place in the human heart and i think humans have a dear compassionate place in the horse's heart and so I think there's a, a maybe a God-given uh, reciprocity that's there between the horse and the humans. You know, we've had them as our main source of transportation from helping plow the garden fields and helping go to the battlefields, uh, delivering the mail, visiting grandma and grandpa, uh, getting from point A to point B. I mean, for thousands and thousands of years, it's been horse and human They've been, and predominantly around the world, that's true. Horses don't have 
very good reasoning skills. The reason they don't have good reasoning skills is because they do not have a prefrontal cortex. Humans have the most developed prefrontal cortexes of all creations on the earth. Primates come, I think, in second place. But they can figure, we can, you know, dolphins have, if, my, if I remember correctly, dolphins have really good prefrontal cortexes. So there are some mammals that are out there that, that are quite evolved in the, uh, in the reasoning skills. But no one is more evolved in reasoning, imagination, creativity. These are the functions of the prefrontal cortex. The downside to the prefrontal cortex is that uh, I can create a narrative because as humans, we tell and live our lives in stories. This is how we learn. This is how we share. This is how we make sense of things that happen. This means that with a prefrontal cortex, it's going to be very, very easy for me to dwell on the pain of the past. It's also going to be very, very easy for me to trip on the anxiety of the future. Horses don't do that. So all a horse does is live in the now. And when you live in the now, there's basically only one thing that you're kind of ever going to really be, you're always going to prioritize just a couple things. Uh, food, safety, reproduction, you know, your basic, like, survival, survival stuff. The only question that a horse ever asks, particularly wild horses, because when they grow up in the wild, they are free to roam wherever they want and do whatever they want, and they are surviving. They are constantly in survival mode because of the difficulties of being out in the wild if the weather's not trying to kill you, the predators are. If the predators aren't trying to kill you, uh, finding enough food and water, so starvation and dehydration are trying to kill you. Um, and then if you go and look online and find all these, these really magnificent photos, because there are amazing photographers that go out there and like follow certain herds uh, in the western United States, and they take these pictures, you'll see that most wild horses have huge battle wounds and battle scars. And that's not coming from the mountain lion. If the mountain lion gets you, chances are you're done. That's coming from within the herd dynamics. And proper, uh, proper vernacular is uh, horses, we say they live in herds, but in actuality, the proper way to say it is that they live in families and horses are a matriarchal society. The stallion does his thing, and he stands up on the hill, you know, and he, he you know, he overlooks, and he's going to protect, and and he'll get he'll get into the fight with the mountain lion if needed. But the real dynamics of the family is ran by the matriarchs. It's ran by the mares, and and it's it's really a beautiful thing um, about that. But can I can means, I ask a quick question? I was yeah. watching one of your videos of them out there, um, and it, it, it occurred to me who's who's leading, who leads when they're running? Is that is that the the matriarch of the of the herd of the family? When they're running, if they're running from danger, or or they're uh, typically that's the stallion's role is to okay. say this is where we're going. I'll take us to a safe a safe space. It's when they're out and they are resting, relaxing, digesting the food that they're eating, and they're, they're just kind of in a calm, confident state of being. And the little ponies are running around and, you know, the foals are, are playing around and they're misbehaving and getting into trouble. And, you know, some of them have got ADD or something like, you know, I say that jokingly because of mm -hmm. me. And and there is the matriarch, and there is a head matriarch. And if another mother is, uh, you know, not taking care of her her little pony running around, the head matriarch will come in and discipline. And and so they're keeping they're keeping those dynamics 
basically, you know, 90% of the time, that's how the dynamics are, and it's the matriarchs that are keeping that all together. Who stays, who goes, who, who's in timeout, and helping them, uh, basically helping them survive. And so uh, I think nature teaches us many great things, but there are so many scars on many of these, these Mustangs, and it's because they get into fights with each other. And so really most of their scars and their wounds are happening either from their families or their friends, their friends and their neighbors. Mm. It's like, gosh, that's a, that's a lot like us. Mm-hmm. So when we, bring, when we bring them in from the wild, it's really, I have, a, I have a video. You bring this wild horse in and you give them water, you've got to walk. In the wild, they're going to walk like 15, 16 miles every day just to get enough nutrition and, and hydration. You bring them into a pen, they're going to walk like 15 to 16 feet and have all the food they want, all the, all the water that they want. And uh, if you adopt them from, from the government, it's the Bureau of Land Management that's responsible for the Wild Horse and Burrow Program. They want you to have fencing that's of a certain caliber. They want you to, I mean, you have to or you can't adopt them. You've got to have a shelter. These are conveniences and comforts that do not exist in the wild. And it does not matter to that horse because of his state of survival. He thinks or she thinks that everything is out to kill them because that has been true in the wild. And now you bring them into domestic life and it's the, you cannot gentle a wild horse with affection. Even though affection does have to be a part of the formula for the, the gentling formula, it is the last piece. They need exercise, they need discipline in their character development, and then they need affection. This is Caesar Milan stuff. He, he says you have to have exercise, discipline, and an affection, and you have to have it in that order. So this tends to you know, span across uh, different mammals. The point, though, is that what we've learned from the wild horses is the discipline. Horses develop character excellences, and when I say character excellences, what I mean is things like courage and wisdom and temperance and gentleness and patience. Horses develop character excellences just like humans do. I cannot help a wild horse transition from surviving to thriving. You can imagine that inner transformation that has to take place on the inside of the horse. I cannot help the horse become something I am not. So in other words, I'm going to teach and I'm going to train what I am. And so for me, having lived a life of surviving, that seems like a pretty big disaster to take a wild horse and a wild human and put those two together and say, yeah, they will be gentle and they will both have great inner peace. It's not going to happen. My husband and I just, and you'll probably laugh at this, we just started watching the show Yellowstone. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's very, it's interesting, the, the dynamics are very interesting between the humans and the horses. And, and I was jotting down earlier as I was watching some of your videos is that the humans, the human element, many of the, many of it, uh, many of the characteristics are very evil in this particular show. And, and totally. as they're bringing in the horses, you know, they're, they're breaking the horses. And I was looking at one last night. It was one, a guy that they qualify as really stupid, but anyway, they, they, duct tape them to a bucking bronco. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Jimmy. Yeah, dude. And, and I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, that's, that's idiotic. And it, was, it broke him. And it, you know, I don't know if it that's broke right. the horse, but it broke the person. Um, and so I was watching that and that element, and I'm thinking about what you're talking about, gentle, you know, gentling um, the, the, sta- the uh, wild horse. But then on the other end, you've got um, the Kevin Costner character who 
was trying to find some sort of solace and, and um, quiet time in the stable with one of his horses, but just, you know, after he was picking up all the horse dung. So, you mm-hmm. know, there's that. I'm just trying to get this, this whole um, emotional, mental connection between the horses and the way people were treating them. And then I'm listening to how you do it. I'm like, that makes so much sense that the horse, the horse doesn't know. You said something about, you know, what's the horse saying when it bucks? So to explain that to people. What is the horse saying when someone jumps on its oh, back? He's, yeah, what he's saying is, I don't feel safe, right? Basically, all you have to do is think of a mountain lion just climbed on your back. What would you do? Yeah, no way. You'd run around like a banshee. <laughs> yeah. You know, you'd buck, you'd throw, you'd, you'd flop on the ground, you'd do whatever. And and then, you know, if the roles were reversed, imagine someone, you know, or some other mammal that's more evolved than humans sitting there watching you freak out and panic with a mountain lion on your back. And they'd be like, oh, you, you know, let's just duct tape that mountain lion to, to their back. They'll get over it. I mean that's that's very that's very similar. Now the reason that it works with the horses to be to be very uh, very clear, we don't want to anthropomorphize. That's a very fancy word for they don't reason and and imagine and create stories in their heads like humans do because they don't have the prefrontal cortex. So what that means is that once the mountain lion climbs off your back and you realize the mountain lion is gone, you go right back to rest, calm, and, and confidence. I mean, they can down-regulate their emotions. Horses have the same thoughts, feelings, and emotions that humans do. They even have tear ducts. I've seen horses cry. Hmm. And, and so they have the same thoughts, feelings, and human, or emotions as humans do. However, what they don't have is they don't have the ability to go dwell on the past or trip on the future. They just go right back to the now. They're like so they're, the not, they're not angry at the mountain lion for being on their back. They've forgotten about that. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. They're just are they, like, are they scared? Back. Are they scared it's going to come back, though? Do they have that quality? Yeah. yeah that's a function in the, in the uh, hypothalamus. Uh-huh. So they have incredible memories. And if it did not go well and the mountain lion comes back, they're going to ramp up anxiety. Okay. So when you just duct tape a guy, going back to your story with, with Yellowstone, which I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie, let's be honest, I play with wild horses. It's funny. <laughs> to it me. Fun I would story. never do it. Be- yeah, I would, I would never do it. And the reason I would never do it is because it doesn't help because you actually create, you, you create more things that have to be undone. Right. Uh, and, and so what, uh, what's happening is this horse thinks, see, the horse knows that the human is the predator for one simple reason. All predators have eyes in the front of their face. This gives you a hunting advantage to obtain the angle that you need for attack. All prey animals have eyes on the sides of their face. So it's not so much even an, an intention thing or an energetic thing as much as it's a biology thing. You got eyes in the front of your face. You potentially are going to hurt me. You also got these little canine teeth and they pick up on all that stuff. And so they're like, that guy eats meat. <laughs> right. And, and so there's just natural things that the, uh, that the horse can sense from surviving for, you know, as long as they've been around on, on the earth. It doesn't mean that they can't grow the confidence and the courage, the bravery to be able to overcome that relationship and those natural fears that would exist, but it's how we go about it. So when you don't have a prefrontal cortex, you're not going to dwell on the past and you're not going to trip on the future. All you care about is how does it feel right now? So if I have got to put a saddle on you, and now think about a saddle, what is a saddle made of? It's made of leather. What's leather? Dead animal skin. You know, these horses are smart. They get it. So they're like, something had to die, and you're going to throw that on top of me, and you're the king predator. This doesn't feel like a good, you know, a good situation. 
So when horses, you know, get this big old 40-pound saddle put on their back and they've never had anything there and you, you quickly try to try to cinch it up, they're going to buck it off because they're thinking, I don't know what this is. And they don't know what it is and they can't reason with it because they don't really have a prefrontal cortex to reason with things. So they just are what they are. So, so to answer the question, bucking is a way, it's an attempt, it's a very violent attempt to run from your problems. That's what it really is. I don't know how to solve this problem. I'm, I'm going to try to run from it. I'm going to try to fight it. Um, and if I can't run fast enough from it because, you know, it's attached to their back and tightened around their girth, well, then I'll try to go up and down. I'll go sideways. I'll spin. I'll slam it into the wall. I mean, you know, they're going to they're gonna just try to survive. And as soon as that thing doesn't, doesn't come off, and it didn't kill them, they're like, oh, well, I'm safe right now. And so they can quickly change, they can quickly change the narrative of what is happening to them to something that is happening for them. Because the thing that, that complicates that story in the human experience is our amazing uh, prefrontal cortex. Because if I strap something onto you that you thought was going to kill you, even if it didn't end up killing you, how many times are you going to go back and replay it in your mind? What a, you know, what a jerk I am for strapping that on to you in the very first place. A horse mm-hmm. will never have that thought. Mm. Horses tolerate humans. And then you say, but they're yeah. stressed out when most of, you know, most of us are on top of them. Um, so th- that was interesting. That, that, that Yeah, that's because, right, because it didn't feel gentle. Right, like like in in Jimmy's scenario with with uh, you know with that horse, for a while that horse is going to tolerate Jimmy getting back on the horse because it wasn't fun, it wasn't gentle. It's not going to kill me, and I know I'm going to be okay. But this is not something I'm choosing into. Horses have willingness, and they do have curiosity. So if you can get those two things and think about your own situation, anytime you can be willing to be curious, you're going to move from a state of caution to confidence. Hmm. Anytime you can be willing and curious, you're going to move your mental state from a state of caution to confidence. Another way to say that is, if you are extremely cautious because of painful experiences in the past, the, you know, you, you need to now become confident. There's self-awareness that has to come in, owning your own power, taking your own power back. The only way to move from caution to confidence is curiosity. Curiosity is the bridge from, from caution to confidence. So the question is, is, well, how do, I, how do I get my confidence back? How do I take my power back? And this is what the prefrontal cortex, you've got to gentle your prefrontal cortex. You cannot control it. Your prefrontal cortex can, I mean, we're a clinically approved uh, retreat system. And, and our clinician that comes in, he says most people have wild mustangs running through their minds. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got a wild Mustang running through your mind because something really painful happened and now you're trying to survive. And anything that something shows up that could look like what happened before, you're going to run from it, fight it, buck it off, right? You're going to keep your distance. That's survival, not thriving, right? And so, so the question is, how can I take my power back? Well, you always had your power and you still got it. The problem is that you gave it away. And so the question is, is, well, how did I give my power away? Well, let's just look at that, that painful story that happened in the past. How do you talk about that story? What is it that... See, what, and I'm just going to use my own story. Um, you know, when my dad didn't show up, because he was gone all the time. I saw my dad like four hours a month. Now, when I saw him, he was great. 
But then you wake up one morning and you're like, he's never here. And so then my dad and my mind became a guy who didn't care. Right? So now what's really happening is I'm, I'm hurt. My dad's not here. And I got to make sense of that pain. So my brain is powerful. My brain's going to start to tell a story. And that story doesn't have to be true. That story only has to feel true because I'm trying to make sense of painful feelings that I don't know how to work through. And so my dad doesn't care. And it's like, well, that may not be true. My dad might actually care. My dad may be struggling with his own, his own you know, struggles, and he doesn't, know how to, he doesn't know how to be. He doesn't know how to show up. Maybe no one showed up for him. I'm not thinking that when I'm 14, 15 years old. I'm thinking my dad doesn't love me. See, that's a story that just in telling that story, it feels so true because it helps numb my pain. The problem is, is I'm actually blaming my dad. I'm blaming my dad for not showing up and I'm blaming him for not being enough. And that story helps numb that pain. The problem is, is that it keeps the wound open. How I tell the story will keep the wound open or it will heal the wound. If anybody in my story is blamed, that person will also be shamed and my wound will always remain open. But if I can start to change the story and say, my dad was doing the very best he knew how to do. Now, it was painful. What's going to show up when I give my dad that empathy that he was just doing the very best he knew how to do. Maybe he's just repeating generational patterns that are super dysfunctional. That's fine. But he was just doing the best he could do, and he really couldn't have done any better. And this is what Brene Brown says. She talks about this in her book, Rising Strong. There, it, there was a survey that was done. Are people doing the very best they can do? The answer is either yes or no. People that said yes were then asked, are you doing the very best you can do? And those same people said yes. And people that said no were asked, are you doing the very best you can do? And they said, I could always do a little bit better. So it's just a mirror. And so how we treat others and how we tell stories about others is really a projection of how we tell stories about ourselves somewhere. And we may not even have that kind of self-awareness. But you said earlier, you said earlier, uh, we have those four ranch rules, no complaining, no blaming, no shaming, no sorrow wasted. The value of not complaining, blaming, and shaming is that you will not waste your sorrow. And the reason you won't waste your sorrow is because if you do not complain, the antidote to complaining is very simple. It's be grateful for what is. Be grateful for all that is. Because you've never complained about something you were grateful for. You didn't sit there and say, this thing is so wonderful in my life. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I have it. It's terrible. This doesn't make sense. You've never complained about something you were grateful for. What you complain about is things that you don't understand why they happened. And so if you don't understand why it happened, it has no meaning. And if it has no meaning, it has no purpose. And therefore, it should not exist in my life. And therefore, I'm going to complain about it. And if I complain about something, well, the first thing that happens is I find fault in it. And if I find fault in it, that's the definition of blaming. I blamed the fault. It wasn't enough. And as soon as it's not enough, that's the definition of shaming. So if I complain, I'm going to automatically blame. And if I blame, I'm going to automatically shame. And now things happen to me, not for me. So then I've got this sorrowful, painful experience that has no meaning. I'm only blaming and, and, and shaming it. It wasn't enough. People weren't enough. The circumstance wasn't enough. You know, whatever all that is, that wound of pain where it all originally started from will always remain open. And it will bleed in the rest of your life. And you'll just keep repeating it because life is going to say, you've got to learn this particular lesson. And so what we don't repair, we repeat. And so this is why crap just keeps showing up over and over and over is because there's a lesson that I'm missing. And why am I missing it? Because I'm complaining and blaming and shaming. And I'm mostly wasting my sorrow. And none of us want to waste our sorrow. So the antidote to all of that is really simple. 
if you look on a spectrum and you say, well, if I'm complaining, what's the antidote to complaining? And it's gratitude. And if I'm blaming, what's the antidote to gratitude? It's accountability. And if I'm shaming, what's the antidote to shaming? It's empathy. And so what you really need is gratitude, accountability, and empathy. And that's where we ought to put our time and our effort to figuring those things out. Because if we can figure those things out, we can go back to the narrative of our story and we can say, do I have gratitude? Am I taking accountability? And do I have empathy for everyone involved in the story? And if you can go through those three things, you will heal all of your emotional wounds because you'll tell the story differently because the emotional wound exists in how you tell the story about what happened. That's how you heal your emotional wounds. That is very wise. And I'm thinking the other day I heard, um, I heard victims blame and victors right. learn. And yeah. I found that true. The more I've learned about things that have happened and why and, and can now recognize them in other people who aren't seeing that for themselves, that helped me to move forward and to accept what 100%. happened, that there's purpose in the pain. Yes, always. Here's what we're not taught to do in, in our life. Well, I'll say it from a positive thing. We are not taught to sit with all of our emotions. What we are taught is to sit with all of our good emotions. Mm -hmm. If it's joyful and if it's happy and it feels super good, I'll sit with that all day long. Please give me more. I'll take two. (laughs) (laughs) But our difficult emotions, our shadow emotions, we're not taught to sit with that. If I feel a shadowy emotion, take it away. I want none of it. Fix it. Tell it to go away. It won't go away. Think about it. When you've been running from all your emotion, the shadow emotions or the emotions of your shadow your entire life, and they keep showing up. They're going to show up tomorrow, and you know it. You know it's coming next month or next year. You know those shadow emotions, and yet we're always running from them. When they go away is when we learn how to sit with them. The way to sit with your shadow emotions are, it's a very simple thing. Be grateful. That's it. Say thank you. Be gentle. I'll give you an example. This is a true story. I didn't think I was going to talk about any of this, by the way. But Well, I appreciate whatever. it. It's a great show. <laughs> Four nights ago, I was up in Salt Lake City. I was delivering some client horses and um, visiting, a, visiting a friend. He gave me a, he's got an awesome log home and this cool little ranch, you know, horse property. And so they have guest bedroom and I got to, I got to stay there. I was there for a couple of nights. The last night that I was there, I woke up at about four in the morning. I don't know why I woke up. I don't remember having a dream or anything like that. But I woke up thinking about my children. And I was sad. That's just what I was. I was just sad. And I'm trying to learn this crap. I can speak really well, just as like a disclaimer. I can talk the talk, and I can mm-hmm. say all the fancy ways of saying it. And I'm like a walking, long-haired, Jesus-looking, smiling guy who's really just a Pinterest account, right? Like I can make it look good and, and say it. I'm learning it myself, and it's so damn difficult. And... I just sat there before the sun came up with these unexpected thoughts that just popped into my mind. And science has proven that we cannot control our thoughts, that our thoughts just generate thoughts. And my brain decided to generate some thoughts about my wonderful children that I haven't seen in a couple years that, that, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of just sadness around that and and i just hugged myself now if you can imagine like wrapping your arms like across your chest or crossing your arms fully across your chest your your hands are kind of touching the back of your shoulders or like your triceps the back of your arms 
And I found myself, I observed myself just like softly, gently rubbing the back of my arms and my shoulders, almost like a, a good loving mother would do, you know, or a friend would do. And I just told myself, it's okay, Hugh. It's okay. This is sad. I'm so sorry you're feeling this, but it's okay. See, that's gentling the shadow emotion. Rather than saying, I'm going to get up, I'm going to avoid it, I'm going to go away from it, I'm going to buck it off, this, isn't, this doesn't feel good. Here's what science also shows. If we will love and be grateful for what shows up, within approximately about 90 seconds, the emotion will pass. Hmm. Now, if you have a really wild Mustang running in your mind, you might dwell on the past and you might pick that story back up again. And so that's why it's so important that we have to change the narrative of what happened to us to a narrative of it happened for us because then I won't go back and pick it up. You know, it might just show up, and then I honor it, and I say, thank you for showing up. I know you have a message. If it didn't have a message, you wouldn't have the emotion. I think it's really important also to understand that we are feelers who think, not thinkers who feel. We are feelers who think, not thinkers who feel. I think this can be proven in a really simple thought exercise. Here on Earth, we have emotions. We are sentient beings. The Latin word, the Spanish word for feelings is sentimiento. And so we're, we're sentient beings. We're beings of feelings and emotions. And you've had lots of experience in life. Maybe you went to Disneyland one time. Think about the emotions that it felt. Think about Christmas morning and the way that felt. Think about your happiest times. Think about your scariest times. Think about what those emotions were and what they felt like. Now, let's just run through that kind of scenario. Maybe you've held a baby and your own child in your arms for the first time, or maybe a, a, a loved one you, know, you held for the first time, a first kiss. Remove the emotion, and what is the experience? You rode the roller coaster, but there was no emotion. See, there's no purpose and meaning in, in experiences, even if they're good, if there is no emotion. This is why we are feelers who have a very powerful prefrontal cortex that know how to reason and create and imagine. It's not the other way around. And so we have to, we're here on earth and we're having these experiences with our emotions. And half of our emotions we're running from and pushing away. All of us have pain. All of us have grief. All of us have sorrow. I think this is the story of Jesus. And whether you're Western, I'm not into organized religion, but I really am into, uh, you know, I, I really am into the, the, the story of Jesus because I do think that there's some very profound messages with the shadow. If you want really incredible messages with the light side of, of our human experience, I think Buddha's uh, got like the, like that's a great example. But if you want what to do with the shadow side of the human experience, I think nobody does it better than Jesus. Isaiah said, he is a man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief. My mother, when I was a little boy, used to tell me, you've got to be like Jesus. And the older I got and the older I got and the more I read, and I wasn't going to school, but I was reading the stories and doing my own homework with it because it got my attention. I was like, I don't want to be a man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief. I don't want to be abandoned, abused, rejected. Right? These are the things that... Uh, that the writings say this was his experience. And that, that for a while, for many years, that didn't make any sense to me because if he's perfect, then why is there so much sorrow, so much grief, so much abandonment, so much abuse, 
so much rejection. And it's because we're not, we don't know how to feel and sit with the other half of all of our emotions, the shadowy side. And so things happen to help you learn how to gentle yourself because you are the medicine. And so you've got to feel these emotions because they're half of your entire human experience. And they're going to go away when you don't need them to go away. And you don't need them to go away when you've learned how to gentle them and be grateful for them and hear the message that they're saying. Anxiety has a message for you. Something is out of alignment, right? Pain says something is something I need to be aware of. And there's emotions, that different types of emotions that are very difficult to sit with, but they have a beautiful message to help you align with what you really want in life. And so they're our greatest teachers, and we often skip, skip class. And you're talking to a guy who got kicked out of three different high schools for skipping class, so I get this, you know, a lot. And so these are things that we've got to uh, figure out how to sit with. This is what our retreats are all about. It's, it's, it's this. And anyway, well, I, that, that makes sense. No, That's it crazy. absolutely does, and it's interesting because I'm sitting here, and my whole the only the reason I I started the Woman Behind the Smile, which is the the organization that I founded, yeah. uh, it's all because I felt like we were all putting up that smile and we're hiding the cracks. Yeah. You know, people want to yeah. see perfection, and and I we spend a whole another hour because there's something you know you talked about perfection <laughs> is wholeness, not flawlessness. And we'll, I'll, have, I'll have you on another time because this is amazing. Um, but I even find myself as a mom of four, grandmother of four, of getting into that, you know, okay, guys, you know, man up, woman up. <laughs> and my daughter will calm me down sometimes and say, Mom, you know, with my, they just moved. She and her kids just moved. And the little one is feeling a little anxious. And I'm thinking, yeah, but there's so many new friends at the new school. And she goes, we have to let him just absorb the upset of leaving and the and get through those feelings and then when we move and he gets the new friends then he'll see the new friends but you can't tell a seven-year-old it'll be okay you'll get new friends because he's feeling the sadness of leaving his old friends yeah so mom here just has to zip it and absorb it and understand that that's so true you know we we in time He'll look back and, you know, I see, I, we moved 10 times in 11 years. They got friends everywhere. You, you do get through it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you just have to mm-hmm. live with that emotion. And yes. I love what you're doing. How can people get a hold of you, watch what you're doing, the programs out in Utah? Um, how do we get a hold of you? Yeah, the easiest way to uh, send us a message on Facebook or Instagram and uh, it's uh, Mustang Medicine. Um, you can go to our website. You know, I, we've got our email there. That's events at mustangmedicine.com. We have a 200-acre ranch that we've partnered with. Uh, we have 32 cabins that are, I mean, they're just amazing cabins, like really, really nice, high-end, yet simple. Um, but, you know, you've got your heat, your AC, your fridge, your kitchen. Your, we got a We're not going camping. some cabins around the, the – no, you're not going camping at all. And uh, we have – we're surrounded by almost a million acres of BLM land 10 miles down the road. We're riding through the Red Rocks and uh, Snow Canyon State Park uh, down here in southern Utah, like some of the most incredible rides in Utah – you know, we're warm. We, we have just right around 300 blue, blue sky days. When it rains here, we get 10 inches a year. So, you know, we're typically really, really warm and really nice, even through the winter. Hmm. Uh, a cold day is like 40 degrees. And so it's just a perfect place for us. And uh, our land is very sacred. Um, we, I mean, we have... Native Americans who have come out and dedicated this this land, and we mindfully work with it 
ourselves. It is in immaculate condition. We have amazing groundskeeper who uh, takes care of the land. And I think a lot of people come and, I mean, half the time they're just like, Hugh, shut up. I'm still trying to process what you said and your seminar from this morning. I'm just trying to take in the beauty and the stillness and the silence of the land. Mm-hmm. The Milky Way goes straight across. We have zero light pollution. So you can just sit all night long and just watch the Milky Way. I mean, like beautiful, beautiful place. It's an amazing program, and uh, I'd get out there in a heartbeat. Thank you so much, my new friend. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and being your best self. If you've been a victim of a scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, please make a small donation to help the victims around the world receive the help that they need. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, Check out our Benfa teaming products at BenfoComplete.com and use the special code STANDUP for 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thanks everybody for being here with us today. Go to my website, TheWomanBehindTheSmile.com for additional information and resources. Check out my YouTube channel and subscribe and follow the replays of all of our great guests. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks very much for being here.